Hi, I'm Jarrett Murphy from City Limits. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, and we're very pleased today on the podcast to be joined by Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, we want to obviously touch on a variety of things with you, but um, you know, for, for listeners who maybe pay attention to politics right now a bit or a lot, but don't know you going way back, will you tell us a little bit about who you are, where you come from? Well, I'm com- where I come from, I'm the product of immigrants. My grandparents fled poverty in Ireland a long time ago, and my grandfather was a migrant worker in the fields of South Dakota. Then my grandparents became domestic workers uh, in the city of Chicago, and then my grandpa found the opportunity to work at the Bethlehem Steel Plant, where they were hiring thousands of immigrants in Buffalo, New York, and that's why my family started in Buffalo. And they worked hard and raised a large family in a tiny house, and my father and mother met in eighth grade, fell in love in ninth grade, and got married as teenagers and lived in a trailer park. And my, grandpa, my father had a chance to work at the steel plant and go to school at night. So I really feel connected to working class people and those values because that's where my family worked. I have many union members, not just steel workers, but plumbers and iron workers and the longshoremen who worked uh, on the ships pulling into the harbors of Buffalo. So that's probably why I'm as tough as I am. I come from a steel town. And it's, it's tough, it's gritty, but it's built resiliency. And despite coming from that real blue-collar Irish Catholic background, my parents raised us in a very progressive household. This was the late 60s, and we were very cognizant of the marches going on in Washington. My parents would take us to those. We went, I wore an armband in grade school to protest the Vietnam War. We were constantly working to integrate our communities. There was a program called Housing Opportunities Made Equal to try and integrate white suburbs and bring African-Americans in for the first time. And I remember people sitting on our front porch and people driving by and questioning, you know, what are those crazy Courtney's doing now? My parents were also brought children with disabilities into our home, kids who had been institutionalized and wanted to make sure that their six children, even though we had a tiny house and we're always piled into rooms together, there's always someone else. So I was really raised with this strong sense of social and moral responsibility to others. I believe that's what pulled me to public service, this seeing that there's people who have less than us and people who are out there leading the fight, whether it was Martin Luther King or Bobby Kennedy, and I remember vividly the day that both of them were assassinated. I remember Kent State like it was yesterday. We talked about this in my household. So I grew up with this firm belief in what public service can do for people, how important it is, and literally in eighth grade after learning more about Washington from a social studies teacher said I want to be in this. But I thought my position in life would be the behind the scenes. I wanted to be a staffer for a senator. That was my goal when I was 13. Someday I want to be a staffer for a senator on Capitol Hill. And I worked for Democratic candidates my entire life, a 15-year-old, a 16-year-old. I used to take an hour-long bus ride down from my town to the city of Buffalo went to Erie County Democratic Headquarters, and I had the chance to work with people like Tim Russert. He was a few years older than I was, and we were working on races, and we got hooked up in the Senator Moynihan's race in 76, had a chance to see him elected. I went off to Syracuse University with this strong passion to be an activist, got involved in student government. And if you ask anybody from the Syracuse University administration from that era, they could not wait for me to graduate. You were trouble? <laughs> I was trouble. I 
launched a boycott of the student bookstore that went on for six months. In fact, I had it taken incomplete because I didn't make it to class very much, but I had all the university professors on board with our cause to you know, put the spotlight on how they were taking advantage of students. I was elected to the University Board of Trustees and was the only student on this body of very influential people, tried to get them to divest their holdings in companies that had business in South Africa as our way to extract uh, the stranglehold of apartheid, and we were successful. Our, our university divested. And one other issue that I worked very hard on, in fact, the New York Times wrote about this when I went to Congress, as a probably 19-year-old, I wanted to have our new dome stadium named in honor of Ernie Davis, the first black Heisman Trophy winner. And I thought it'd be simple. I'd go ask the individual who was coming forward with the almost $3 million naming gift, if I went and met him, the chairman of Board of Carrier Corporation, and presented my case, he would see how enlightened it was and how altruistic it would be for him to make this statement of our uh, incredible respect for the courage that Ernie Davis displayed as, as someone who and then died shortly after making it to the professional football team. So I go in there in a pair of jeans and a table as big as this and talk to this white-haired old man who just almost laughed me out of the room. But I, I, I finally got something. I learned about negotiation. We were able to get not the university named naming the dome after Ernie Davis because it's now the Carrier Dome, sure. but we got the Ernie Damon, Damon uh, Davis Legends field. So when I go to a football game there, I see that there is an, uh, a tribute to Ernie Davis. So I learned a lot about how to negotiate, deal with people in positions of power, how to be a strong advocate, and a voice for causes that I believed in with all my heart. So that led me to law school, uh, working for candidates once again. Whoever was running as a Democrat, I was with. Position in a big law firm was not satisfying to me to be in a big law firm. So as I've historically done, I always take a pay cut, whatever job I take. So I went from being out of law school, doing well for about a year, and went to be counsel to a congressman. And eventually, Senator Moynihan recruited me to be an attorney on his staff. And in that capacity, I worked on absolutely fascinating issues that I championed, campaign finance reform. We believed even back then that money had too far, uh, too much influence in our politics, and we proposed having a public financing initiative where you could check a dollar on your tax return, we accumulate the money in the Treasury, and you no longer had to be a multimillionaire to run for office or to take money from all sorts of corporations. We thought we could take the money out of it. Um, I'll never forget that summer. The Republicans filibustered our bill. We had worked with the majority leader, and it died after probably three months of straight filibuster against it. Had a chance to champion the cause of immigrants at the time. Worked on the last major meaningful immigration reform where we were able to, what they called it amnesty at the time, but grant citizenship to over seven million people who are living in this country. I was the point person on that for the senator. I'm very proud of that work to make sure that individuals who found their way to our country and were living here with their children and their families and part of our social and economic fabric had a right to stay. And that's why it's such an important issue for me to continue championing the cause of immigrants. Worked on drug bills, worked on all kinds of legislation back then, but uh, after a time we had children. My husband and I got married, who I met as an intern, and decided to go back to Buffalo, where we were both from. I got involved with the Democratic Party once again, started going to town board meetings in my community. I didn't like the direction of my community, 
and once again became the activist, bringing petitions and lining up support and mobilizing people and fighting them tooth and nail. And even at that time, I didn't think I should run for office myself. I was always the behind the scenes. I was the speechwriter for the senator. I was always the person uh, helping other people with policies and strategies, and I loved it. And never really had the confidence to run for office myself. Would you think about it now? I was really holding myself back, which is part of my narrative to all the women I speak to across the state, is that sometimes you're held back because of your own insecurities and your own lack of confidence. And I was never going to run for office, even though I was probably 35, had a couple of kids, had been an activist my entire life, been an attorney, had done so much, helped with some businesses. And then a 22-year-old young man out of high school, or just out of college, decides he's going to run for town board. And he lived at home with his mom and dad. He had never even really earned a paycheck. He had nothing to offer, in my opinion. And he decides he's got what it takes to run for council member. And I said, you know what? Maybe I do too. Maybe, maybe all my credentials over here actually could make a difference in my community. So I ran. He also ran. And there were two seats open. And we were both successful. But I'll tell you about that race. This is a very conservative town. I was told that as a Democrat, if I didn't take the right to lifeline as a candidate, I would never win. Because every other Democrat who'd ever won in this town that had been 150 years all Republican, the only way a Democrat could succeed is to take the right to lifeline. I said no. I said I'll take my chances, and if I lose, at least I tried. And I'll never forget knocking on the doors of people in my town. And I knocked on the door of Rita Chatley, an elderly woman who had been the church organist since I was a little girl, a friend of our family. She saw me coming out her window and she said, don't come near my house because you're a baby killer because I would not take the right to lifeline. That's how challenging it was in the town I grew up in. And all my progressive uh, values and fighting for working class individuals and all that, I felt just all came together and said, you know what, I don't care, I'm going to run anyhow and I'm going to win this race. And so. So this is a long story. You asked no, me no, no, my story. Like a monologue here, but no, uh, that's okay. Yeah. But then I, we'll, we'll I, get our questions I, I was a, I was, a, I used that opportunity to fight for more than a traditional council member does. I redefined the role. I even did things like boycotted ExxonMobil. There was a time when they had obscene profits, four hundred million dollars in profits. Gasoline prices had gone over to four dollars a gallon. And I could see the people in my working class town hurting. And young people weren't able to get to their jobs because they couldn't fill the gas tank. And there was no public transportation to speak of. So if you don't drive a car, you don't get to your work. And it was hurting families and a lot of people, and I fought that. And so, yes, it didn't have the effect I wanted. I did not shut them down, but I made a statement. And CNN picked up on it. And people from Texas who had been fighting ExxonMobil started sending me letters of support. So. You know, in my own way, I felt we had made a statement at least. But I fought on all kinds of issues, and I loved that opportunity. And I was so close to the people, knocked on everybody's door two years in a row, three years in a row, got to hear from people sitting in diners and their concerns, and really empathize with the challenges of people in an area that was really going downhill. I mean, Western New York really took it on the chin when the steel plants left and foreign trade hurt us and people were moving to warmer climates and the saying when I was growing up was last one out turn out the lights and all my siblings left town I was the only one left out of a big family 
all my cousins moved away. It was really quite tragic. But I've stuck around to keep fighting. I, I believe that there would be better days ahead. I ran for county office, was the only woman elected there. I'd been the only woman on my town board. Always used to being the only woman. And then, if you want to know the story of how Congress happened, uh, we can wrap up with that variation. But I was elected as a county official, county clerk, and had worked very hard. And we ran the DMVs, which does not exactly make you a popular person. You need to know this. But I was able to, through my management skills and working and bringing members of the union to the table and find out how we can improve services, we really changed the whole customer experience in a way that was unbelievably positive. I treated it like a private sector business and had a lot of accountability and made sure that the customers walked out that door happy or I personally called them at the end of the night and said, I'll take care of your problems. So I was very hands-on, ran this operation, and I loved the work. But then in February of 2011, the congressman from our area did something that I don't recommend when you're a member of Congress, and that is to, well, you can look it up, but um, seek out other people using your real name on the Craigslist. Don't recommend it. Uh, yeah. don't, don't recommend Easy it. Easy path to scandal. Yeah, yeah, just a little advice for your <laughs> listeners. Uh, so next thing we know, he resigns within hours, and there's an open seat. And when you do the analysis, you know, a lot of people are encouraging me to run for county executive. There's never been a woman county executive in Erie County, which has Buffalo, about an area of about a million people. And I just won county ride with 80% of the vote. I had 100% name recognition. I had the resources it would take. I could probably make it as the first female county executive. On the other hand of the ledger, and I explained this to my daughter when we were doing my analysis, I have a 20, had a 21-year-old daughter at the time, the other side of the equation was a seat in Congress, most conservative district in the state of New York, seven counties. I'm barely known, anyway, I was not known outside my own county. The money would be exorbitant it took to run, and I'd get killed by the Koch brothers and Karl Rove. And so that was my choice. And I looked at my daughter, I said, Katie, what do you think I should do? She says, Mom, you've got to do Congress. You've got to do Congress. And I realized, and I want people to know this, that your children watch you, even as when they're in their 20s. They're watching to see whether there's something to take away from that. And I knew my daughter was watching to see if I had the guts to do something that very few people would actually do. So I threw my hat in, ran in a special election, very like the special elections where the whole country was watching what we saw in, in Pennsylvania and in Georgia. I was in the middle of the fight, and I was not aware that this was being talked about all over the country. And we were behind, and I just kept, up, kept fighting. And Paul Ryan had just been budget chairman for a very short time. He put out his first budget. And in that budget, he was ripping apart social programs that I believed in, programs for children and education. And he was going to fundamentally change Medicare forever, a promise we had made to the people of this country back in 1965. So that was the tool I needed to get Republican women, in particular, to vote for me. Because I would never win on the Democratic line, not in a million years. It was such a conservative district. But I went out to the diners and the farms and talked to people and said, this is going to hurt you, that they're going to break a promise that you'll be taken care of when you're, when you're elderly. And we shocked the nation and won. My election night had everybody from Al Jazeera to the uh, 
London newspapers and Amsterdam papers and all every all the national networks watching us because it was such an ast an astounding rejection of the Tea Party values because they had just taken over months before this was uh, after the Tea Party wave in November of, of um, 2010 and I was one and I won in May of 2011 so I go off to Washington unexpectedly I didn't have a place to live <laughs> my friend Carolyn Maloney who I'd met on the campaign trail and who embraced me and said I reminded her of her because no one believed she could win in her primary and her challenges when she first took on the, the system. She let me live in her house. Uh, she gave me a room next to her room and we shared a bathroom and shared a lot of conversations about how to negotiate to get on certain committees and who I needed to get to know I me. Mean, she really was such an incredible mentor and supporter and, and the entire New York delegation, you know, Joe Crowley and uh, yeah, Ed Meeks, or uh, Ed, um, Greg Meeks and everyone, uh, Yvette and Nydia and they just absolutely embraced me because I was not supposed to be there. And I was also sending a message, and I think Bill Clinton wrote this in his book, that what we did in New York 26 was a template for the Democrats to win in other races. And I was very proud of that, that if I could do something that was going to help my party win seats nationally, that's something I, I championed, and I, and I embraced that. Do you think that's a, one of the things you want to talk about was there are several races maybe not exactly similar to yours, but where similar efforts are being made this year. Um, upstate congressional seats now held by Republicans or Democrats feel they have a shot. Do you feel the template of your race in 2011 still applies? What advice would you give to folks who are essentially trying to do what you did? I think the climate is far better now for these candidates because of Donald Trump. That is a thousand times different. I mean, Donald Trump in my old congressional district, I think he won with maybe 72%. So there are some districts that are continue to be tough, but there's a lot of seats upstate that are marginal. I mean, the ones in the Hudson Valley, you know, had been held by a Dem had been held by a Republican. There've been swing districts in Syracuse area. It's gone back and forth. So I think there's opportunities to absolutely pick up now. I think I would recommend, and I give a lot of advice to them. By the way, I'm constantly talking, and they always call me. The medic Medicare issue is still strong because the Republicans still want to attack programs, um, programs for children, the uh, nutrition programs, early education programs. I would lean hard into programs that transcend party labels. And that's what these do. And that's what I, how I want on Medicare. I didn't define it as a Democrat or Republican issue. I, want, I let them know that I, as a Democrat, was going to fight for them against the Republicans, and you need to be concerned about this. So I do believe that we still have the angel on our side. We, we are fighting for issues that people really want to protect. But let me tell you what happened with respect to the Affordable Care Act in my district. Because what is astounding is that I would talk to people who were receiving the benefits of Obamacare in this conservative Republican area. They had no idea that the Affordable Care Act was the same as Obamacare. They didn't know it. So they hated Obamacare, but they were beneficiaries of it. And so when I was up for re-election re in a very short time after my special, and there had been redistricting, the only little Democratic area I had was removed, so it became even more Republican. The issue became a referendum on me because I refused to vote to repeal the Affordable Care Act. I had probably 35 or 40 times when it came for a vote, and every time I got clobbered for it back home. And what really was part responsible for my demise, I would say, is the Affordable Care Act included the contraceptive mandate, which said that employers 
had to provide this to their employees. And there was actually a carve-out for religious organizations that let them go to a third party. They really made a good accommodation, very reasonable one. But I did a town hall meeting in Lancaster, New York, and unbeknownst to me, the Catholic Church sent the message out, and they talked about this on their Catholic radio. They talked about it in the pulpits on Sunday and told people to come to my town hall meeting. And I was walked in surrounded by angry people with posters and pictures. And it was so hard for me to see this because a lot of them had been people I had gone to church with in my own town and had gone, you know, were the parents of kindergarten classmates of my kids. So I looked out and I saw such anger and hatred in their eyes at me because I refused to abandon these core values I have as a Democrat, which is to fight for women's reproductive health, women's rights, and to fight for access to health care for all. And this very large man raced to the front of the podium. My staff wanted me to leave, and I had promised I'd stay an hour. An hour wasn't quite up. Probably a smarter person would have walked out. But I said, I can take this. And, I, and they, they raced against me. They challenged me. The priest in the front row was so harsh. And it was hard, and they kept saying, well, you've betrayed your faith, you betrayed your Catholic upbringing. I went to a Catholic grade school. Um, but I wouldn't waver. I wouldn't, and it's, I subscribe to, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. I come out of that experience, and I still go to that town, even though my poor staff has PTSD, they can't go past the building it happened in, because they, they were traumatized. These are young staffers who believed in me and were shocked to see that this would happen to an elected official that people generally liked. But this is how visceral these issues are in parts of the state where I come from. And that's why today, as someone, as the only woman in statewide office, I feel a special responsibility to continue using this platform to fight on these issues because I've done it before, I've survived, I'm stronger than ever before, and I'm happy to take on those fights like we did in the Senate last week. So I think that gives people a lot of context for sort of looking at your race this year, you're being challenged in the Democratic primary, you know, though obviously if, if that goes well for you, you know, there'll be a challenge in the general election, but, you know, there's there's talk about your record, um, you know, fairly regularly, um, and that gives people a lot of context for sort of the area you represented and how you approach some of your personal beliefs and your representation. But um, I think, you know, one of the lingering questions sort of is on some of the issues um, beyond women's reproductive rights, how did you, you know, were, were, so for example, on marriage equality, on, you know, now the issue of driver's licenses for undocumented immigrants is becoming a, a, a big issue again. Um, describe how you thought about and you balanced personal beliefs representing the district. Are there some, some cases where it just wasn't the time where you believed in certain things, or was it, or was it that you were um, reflecting the your constituents? I mean, how do you how did you approach yeah. you know some of the other issues that we haven't talked about? And, and that's a good question. For, for example, with respect to marriage equality, um, I have been a staunch supporter of the LGBTQ community my entire life, uh, starting with the realization that my uncle Kevin uh, was a gay man at a time when it was not a popular thing to be in a conservative town. And I saw how he had to move away. And I saw how 
he didn't know how to handle life, and we all went to visit him in his house in Florida when he lived in the same room with our Uncle Charlie. Uh, but we, we just thought this was normal. You know, so like, I never question the rights of anyone to live with or be with whoever they love, because that's part of my DNA. And I don't understand how people cannot espouse that belief, and I don't understand the difference between personal views and public views on this, because these are human beings who deserve our respect and the dignity. And that's why I have a question about other people's positions on that. And, and it's tough in that area, no doubt about it. That issue became a challenge for me when I spoke about it, when I voted on it in Congress, and there were certainly people who did not support me on that. And I'll tell you something else I did. When I was a county clerk, the issue came before us that there are members of the trans community, which was very small at the time, I assure you, this was back in 2007, but they came forward and says, would you support us to have having the right to be able to identify our gender on our, on our legal records? 2007, this was not talked about in many places, and I'm in the conservative area. I said, of course, of course you can do that. And we let them do that in Erie County. And this became an issue here in the city of New York. Other people went different positions on it. And you got to remember the context of where, where I was doing this and the environment at the time. On the immigration issue, yes, I have seen how there are individuals now who desperately need to get to their jobs. A driver's license is literally the vehicle to get there. And when I was a member of Congress, I'd go out to the farms in the most rural districts and these are people that are growing corn and potatoes. And uh, went out and talked to a lot of the farmers, and they would not exist if they didn't have people working on their farms. Many of them had H-2A visas. Some of them overstayed them. I worked very hard as a member of Congress to get ICE to back off on these people because it was seemed criminal to me that these people were being rounded up like animals and carted off, and they were making sure that were fed and were taken care of. So I had a chance to see outside the limited world I was in how important this is, and I am championing the cause of immigrants and have been uh, since I was a young person and we brought immigrant families into our home, kids from other countries into our home. And so um, I stand with them. They know I stand Just with them. Just briefly to follow up on that, I know we want to get to some other stuff, but um, so what you, what, when your approach as county clerk on the driver's license, would you say that's something you regret, or it's sort of something that you've needed time to just... Um... It was it was the time, and I said I would uphold the law. I mean, there are people who said they would break the law. I said, you know, if this is what the state of New York decides to do, I will uphold that law. Uh, it became very contentious in our community, again, knowing mm -hmm. the context of where I am. Um, I wish I had not gone that route at the time. I really do, uh, because I realize it was, it was hurtful to people, and that was never my intent. And I would never do anything intentionally to hurt anybody or make them feel they weren't welcome. And if you, again, you look back to what I did as a, as a staffer, making sure that people had the ability to live here in a way that no one's even talking about now. I worked on those issues, so I don't think you can question my commitment to them uh, in that, con that larger context. The um, conversation about uh, Buffalo, uh, which is one of my favorite cities and uh, a place that uh, is fascinating and it has been the focus of the governor's, some of the governor's efforts to, um, you know, promote economic development and try to rescue Buffalo. Um, how successful do you think those have been? If you were to walk the streets of Buffalo today, is it, do you feel a difference or are we still waiting to see an impact? 
the impact has been felt. And what my test is, is I said you used to be able to ask a cab driver. Now you ask an Uber driver. And we didn't even have uh, the capacity to have uh, Uber drivers or Lyft drivers up in our area until a couple of years ago. So you ask anybody on the streets of Buffalo, you go up there today, ask anyone if they can see and feel the difference. And the answer will be yes. There is literally not just a physical change where you can see an area that was abandoned wasteland on our waterfront, which is now a place that a million or two million people go to every summer for concerts and the winter ice skate. I ice skate down there. It's right near, I live right down there. Uh, or in the summertime, just kayaking on the Buffalo River that was so polluted, you could see debris and garbage floating by. And the color of the water was this bizarre color because it was so filled with chemicals from the, from the plants. Uh, now people are fishing down there and swimming, and it's just, it's unbelievable. And the businesses that are coming, this is one of the top destinations for millennials in the country. It is listed by Entrepreneur Magazine as one of the top locations for startups. Not in a million years could I have foreseen that level of success. The medical campus, the thousands of jobs coming there. So the, set, the success is in the jobs, in the transformation of neighborhoods, the physical change, but the psychological change. There's a sense of pride that was never there. And when I was growing up, I went to school in Europe, studied in London. I'd always say I was from New York. I wanted people to think I was from New York City. <laughs> I didn't say I was from Buffalo. Mm -hmm. Today I'd be proud to say I'm, well, New York State, but I think there's a sense of pride that people have now. And the families and individuals who were expats who moved away were now coming back the affordable housing, but also the nightlife, the, the, the vibe that's there now that was never there. It was never a cool place to be. And now with the restaurants and the entertainment scene and the art scene and the architecture, uh, New York Times had their list of 52 things to do, 52 places to visit in 2018. Buffalo, I think, was 35 or yeah. 37. I could not have seen it. And the governor gets the credit for that because I lived there all my life. Nobody paid it the attention that he did. I was a member of Congress when he said we're going to put a billion dollars in Buffalo. I was sitting there listening to him give his State of the State address, and my jaw dropped. And I said, "Is that? did I hear that right? Is he really going to do that? And people needed that, that infusion of faith in them. And now when I travel the state, and I, I'm responsible for economic development, so I get to talk about the Buffalo story, I say, if we could bring back the hardest hit area in the state, we can bring back anything. But how? I mean, I guess that's my follow-up question is, if Buffalo's gone so well, why hasn't it been replicated elsewhere? Or does it take that type of massive influx of state dollars that you just can't do in too many places? We are doing it in other places, and I spend an enormous amount of time in two other hard-hit areas, which is Syracuse and Rochester. Rochester lost thousands of jobs when Kodak left. 60,000 people had good-paying white-collar jobs there, and then they were gone. So now we have the abandoned campus, the Kodak, Eastman Kodak campus. We're now bringing technology jobs there and photonics businesses. And so, yes, we've had to incentivize a lot of this, leveraging private dollars with public dollars. Same thing in Syracuse. No one would have dreamed five years ago that this would be the international capital for drone technology. We declared it as such, and I've convened conferences there and spoken to international groups trying to recruit businesses. And we have a testing area, and even California bans testing of drones. We have a corridor for 50 miles where we're allowing companies to come in and test and innovate and create jobs there. So we have identified through regional economic development councils 
where you really literally take the decision making out of Albany, put the hands of the local businesses, people from labor, not-for-profits and academia, and pull them together and say, you tell us your vision for your community and we'll support it. And we have competitions. So it's not just here's a handout, have a good time. It is you have to put a very well thought out strategic plan with particular pillars that you want supported, whether it's tourism, whether it's agriculture, uh, whether it's manufacturing, biotechnology, and we'll make sure that you have the resources you need. And that is what's taking off. Buffalo, because it started earlier, and you could see the differences because it's, you know, it's a, they're physical changes and it's a larger population, but again, it makes it easier to do a Binghamton or a Cortland or smaller areas. And we also have a program where we have $10 million infusion into 20 different communities in the last couple of years. We call it the Downtown Revitalization Initiative. I have seen downtowns just, uh, just given up for lost. I mean, boarded up storefronts. The only thing you see are tattoo parlors, uh, which are fine, but that's not really going to drive economic growth. Now we see craft breweries and distilleries and wineries and people wanting to congregate downtowns and we're bringing back housing in places they weren't even a zone for housing. You couldn't even live above these storefronts. So we've had a very holistic approach to stabilizing these downtowns, fixing up the ones on waterfronts, like those along the Erie Canal. And that's why I encourage people to take a trip across the state. And if you don't know the before and after, you'll still be wowed by what you see in Means Community. We're not done yet. We know we have more to go, but unemployment has been down. 200,000 jobs have been created upstate through this program. Uh, $6.4 billion worth of investment that was never done before, before the governor and myself, who represent much of upstate, I've seen what decline looks and feels like, and I know what recovery looks like, and that's what we're living with right now. It's very exciting. And there have been some misses, right? There's been some of these investments, you know, recently seeing a lot of stories about, um, you know, property being uh, moved off the, from the state to the county. Um, you know, what, how do you account for some of the misses? And there's obviously also been some scandal. Um, how do you how do you sort of address those? Because while I think there's been a lot of praise for the um, for the Buffalo work, you know, there's also been obviously scandal even attached to that. Right, and that's what's being you know that there are trials on that right now, and it is it is heartbreaking to see how people abuse the trust that was placed in them. It really is, and and we need accountability, and we're getting accountability. And there was a separate entity that had been orchestrating much of the economic development that has changed. It's all in the hands of Howard Zemsky, who I trust enormously, who has a, a stellar reputation for his integrity. He, he chairs our Empire State Development. So projects that had started under other entities are now consolidated under his work. Now, in anything with businesses and economic development, you're not going to get 100% of the time success. It just doesn't happen. We can put together a model. We can incentivize a business to come. But something may happen in their own supply chain or something that increases their costs or something happens with foreign competition or there's a tariff. I mean, you look at what we're trying to do with solar panel fabrication. All of a sudden, there's tariffs that affect these, the materials used in those. You can't always foresee this, but by God, you better try. And that's what I saw growing up is that no one even bothered trying. No one got creative. No one said, here is some state money to give you a little extra help. When you leave these communities on their own, they can flounder because it is not New York City where people are attracted just by the energy and the excitement. 
and the opportunities that are here. Other places have to have incentives and do some, do, use a little more creativity. We've had business plan competitions. Buffalo has something called 43 North, the largest business plan competition on the planet. We have brought young startups from Israel, Canada, Europe, and all over this country who win a million dollar prize or anywhere up, upwards of $250,000. And then they're in an incubator downtown in this very cool space. I visit them all the time. They're all young, they're entrepreneurs, they're building and thinking outside the box, working together and creating a new ecosystem for technology. And I love it. I've taken girls there all the time because I want girls to see what it looks like to be a leader, to be an entrepreneur, to use technology to get new products. And so I would say there's been some misses, but on balance, the, set, the successes have exceeded all expectation. So you mentioned before we came on, on tape that uh, you've been in the city for since the, the weekend. Uh, and um, recently you've been uh, uh, higher profile in the news because of the role you played in the state senate in a couple of exciting days. Um, so two questions about that. One is, how do you, what do your duties normally consist of? What do you focus on? What are the portfolios you handle? And two, it was said after the state senate episodes that it might make sense for you to spend more time around that body given how close it is. Do you foresee that being part of your work uh, for the remainder of your time? Well, here's what's interesting. I'm glad you asked that question as well because people are a little confused. Historically, we have had a uh, higher number of Republicans, the Democrats, and so they can push through their agenda, their amendments, and what they want through. And they do that. They rarely give the Democrats even an opportunity to speak on issues that are important to them. Because of this unique, unique circumstance where the Republicans are down one individual, uh, Senator Croce, who seems to not plan on returning, it's 31-31. So I, as president of the Senate, one of my constitutional um, opportunities and responsibilities is I can preside. I choose to preside when it actually makes a difference, as opposed to sitting up there in a pro forma way and just banging the gavel. That doesn't do anything when they're going to have all the votes on their side. But in this case, I went to the Senate last Monday, walked in the door with the intention of presiding. Republicans saw me and shut down business for the day. Day two, I show up. I get close to the podium. They shut down business for the day because they know that I can cast a vote on a procedural matter and break a tie. Not on a, not on a final outcome of a bill. You need to understand that this is simply to allow debate on some amendments. I do not have the final say or have the opportunity to cast a vote on, on legislation. I show up the last day. I just want to say quickly, you know, what Democrats have been trying to push, though, is, to, is basically the, those amendments to force uh, Republicans to take a stand on some very controversial issues, including sort of almost how we started the conversation on some reproductive health that, that's issues. That's exactly what which we is, did. Which is, but go ahead. You know, that's exactly what we did. And this was scripted. It's something we had planned out with the Democrats because a good friend of mine, Senator Liz Kruger, had been pushing for years and years to get the Reproductive Health Act even debated on the floor of the New York State Senate and had not been successful. So we knew that if I called on her, she'd have her chance to do this. When we walked in there, the Republicans decided to blow up the whole plan and they literally tried to get an override of something the governor had vetoed. They start playing games. They start calling me out of order for calling on Liz Kruger and they started acting like children throwing a temper tantrum. 
because I refused to acknowledge them and I was calling on her and they said I didn't know the rules and they're pounding and it's just it was just and I'm watching them like I mean I've raised kids and that this, this reminds me of what I dealt with as a parent I mean you you didn't get your way and you obviously have a problem with a strong woman presiding here because you're all acting I'll be diplomatic wildly inappropriate and what I had heard from other members of the Senate that they had never seen anyone treated with such disrespect as they did with me. I think they thought they could intimidate me. Wrong approach. Because I was calm. I stalled when I needed to, and I said, well, I need to read this over here. I need to take a look at these documents, and I'm not going to say the individual they had guiding me was a Republican attorney who kept insisting that I read certain language, and I said, no, I don't even see that. It's hard. I <laughs> I don't, want to like, tip, yeah. I don't want to tip my hand here, but I was refusing to bow to what they wanted. And when I called on Liz Kruger to speak, they shut down business again. They literally adjourned. Now, I can do that every day of the week. It's fine with me. I can take it. But we have work that has to get done, too. And that's what the balance is right now. We have to get work done by the end of session. Now, there's three days left. I'm not going to make any predictions. Oh, we were just going to say, where are you going to be next <laughs> week? Yeah. Uh, my public schedule has been light. It's been more flexible than usual. Usually you'll see 10 events a day, and we're going to keep it fairly uh, light for the next few days and then see what the opportunities bring. And that's fine with me. I want to make sure that I'm having a, a positive impact, and there are things that the governor and I have been championing. For example, this whole initiative to take on the NRA and the Senate Republicans over something that we think would help save lives in schools, and that's what we call our, our red alert bill, where teachers are the ones who sit there and see these kids all day long, and they can tell the ones who have mental health problems, the ones who have anger problems, the ones who are volatile, and the ones who could be more likely to uh, be subjected to their own suicide or harming others. And those are the ones that we think a teacher should be able to petition a judge and say, I want the guns out of that kid's house before I get killed and my kids in my class get killed. So the governor and I have been literally on a school bus going around the state this week. We were in Long Island, we were in the Bronx, we were in Westchester. I took it up to Ulster County a day or two ago. And just calling out the Republicans, calling out the NRA to back off. Let's get through some common sense gun reform. You can still keep your guns upstate if you want to go to the shooting range or take out a couple of deer, whatever you want to do. This has nothing to do with it. This is about saving kids' lives. And they better allow this to come before the New York State Senate, or shame on them. This will be an issue against them because the voters in their districts have a right to know whether or not, not just did you vote for it, but your leadership not even let it come to the floor for a vote. And that's what we're saying. And there's so many other issues like voting access. I believe, and the governor believes, we should have at least a week or 12 days before the election day for people to cast their vote because it's so important and so many people are not able to get out and wait in the long lines and cast their vote. And I want everybody to be able to cast a vote because it makes a difference. Look at Washington, look at Donald Trump, what happens when enough people don't get out and vote. We're gonna change that. And I will call out the Republicans every day of the week for being obstructionists and not supporting democratic values. And that's a small d. These are democratic values of letting people have access to vote. So we've gone a little bit over time. We appreciate all your time. We're, I think, going to ask you each one more question with Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul. Uh, thank you for the time, and, and we'll, we'll yeah. la ask our last couple questions. So I wanted to go back to your biography briefly and talking about your family and growing up in a working-class household. And, you know, 
that working class progressivism is such an important part of the sort of his political history of the last 20 years, right? Those are the folks who way back when supported the New Deal, but then they became Reagan Democrats. They may have been part of the Trump phenomenon. People like that that you grew up with and those households, um, have they changed? Are they, are they less inclined to kind of believe in the better angels of our nature? Are they totally irredeemable to democratic progressive politics? Are they meaner or is there still a way to, to bring them back to the fold? Do we misunderstand the changes that have occurred? Outstanding question, and I think that's something that Democrats need to deal with heading into the next elections. I never write off anybody. Everybody is redeemable. You go to my area, you'll still see anti-SAFE Act signs, something that Governor I believe was a common sense gun law way back on five years ago. But I believe that it's up to us to appeal to them and say, you have to understand, we are the ones who are going to have your back when it comes to making sure your children get the best education, that you have access to affordable child care, that we have paid family leave programs like we do here in the state of New York, that we're the ones fighting to protect the environment so it's safer and cleaner for the next generation. We're the ones who are going to make sure that when you're a senior citizen that you will not have your health care watered down or yanked away. And it's upon us to do that. And I'm going to view, because I'm an optimist, I'm truly an optimist at heart, and I was around when Richard Nixon was president, and I saw a president leave the presidency on a helicopter first time in history. I thought that was the lowest point in our country, but look how we came back. Look how we came back. So I talk to a lot of young people who are very frustrated, and people from my own area, they, they just think they give up hope, they don't care anymore, it doesn't matter. I say, it does matter. You need to get engaged. And what I see in my old high school, that when they had the walkouts across the nation to honor the children lost at the Parkland High School, all across the country, my niece who's in school there was told as a senior in high school she would not be able to walk across the stage for her graduation if she participated in the walkout. And I called her up and I said, I used to intern at the ACLU back when I was younger. I know some people. We're going to have a problem if they don't let you do this. And we got things turned around and everything's okay. But there are still those values. But what, what impressed me was all the kids who wanted to walk out. All those kids who wanted to walk out. This next generation is awesome. Uh, these 16-year-olds, these 17-year-olds, when they, when they vote, they're going to relish the chance to vote. And I never felt that growing up. I think I've not given up on anybody. But it's Democrats have the power to get it right, and I think as long as there's a Donald Trump, we can point to one figure who's so polarizing that we can bring together women, members of the LGBTQ community, immigrants, anybody, people from the disabled communities who've been mocked out by this president, anybody who does not feel that they fit in Donald Trump's vision of America, which seems to be most everybody, we band together, there is tremendous power. And that's the energy I feel from the young people. And as an older person or a former young person, I love seeing that. I'm energized by it. With the Trump atmosphere, are you sort of shocked? Um, you know, I hear, hear from some Democrats, like, how is there this strong challenge to the governor's left and, and you know, in, in one sense to you and the governor, you know, sort of together from the left in, in this Trump atmosphere you know, there's Democrats out there saying, how can these folks mount this campaign when we've got 
much bigger fish to fry. Are you very frustrated or do you understand where the Cynthia Nixons and Jemani Williams and the folks supporting them, which is not a tiny number, you can, I don't want to get into a debate about how, many, how much support they have, but there's some group, obviously, and candidates willing to do it. How do you reconcile that? I mean, do, do you get it? Do you, are you, is it frustrating to you? <laughs> I approach every challenge with the effort and the attempt to understand people come from. So I'm trying to put myself in their shoes, but I also understand history very well. And I know what happens when Democrats attack each other and there's polarization because the only beneficiaries of that dynamic are the Republicans. And whether you want to go back to presidential races and Al Gore, um, back to, you know, I, I, I've lived long enough, I know all the stories. What I would love to do is harness all that energy and set it on fire against Republicans. Because what I'd be doing right now, if I didn't have a challenge, is what I'd set out to do, was to help elect Democrats to Congress and upstate. I recruited some of them. I want to help them. I want to fundraise for them. I want to be knocking on doors with them. Same thing with making sure we have a full majority in the New York State Senate of Democrats. And a primary keeps you on the ropes, you have to focus on it, because I need to be there to finish the job with Governor Cuomo. So it is what it is. I wish people understood that this energy is better spent on the other party right now because of the threat of Donald Trump. It was another, and I've said, it's, we can all be purists about everything when we have a Democrat in the White House, we have the House and the Senate, and we have our New York State Legislature. And then we can fight among each other on the nuances. But Governor Cuomo has done an exceptional job. And I have been honored to be a champion of these causes that are good for working class people and fighting for people who've been disaffected, who felt that people didn't care about them anymore. We are changing that trajectory. And we are in a much better place because of his leadership and my leadership next to him as the person who's on the ground bringing back the ideas. I am really the advocate in chief because I, pos I work on these issues to get them over the finish line and I go out and talk about them in every corner of the state, whether it's sexual assaults on college campuses, whether it's sexual harassment, whether it's pay equity for women, I chair a task force on this, whether it's the heroin opioid crisis where I co-chaired a task force on that to come up with the most aggressive plan in the nation. I have been working on issues with my hands in the dirt out there all over the state, and that's what I do best. And I want to finish the job. I want to leave this place even better uh, four years from now. Well, we will leave it there with Lieutenant Governor, Governor Kathy Hochul. Thank you very much for the time, and uh, hopefully we'll get you on the podcast again sometime before November's Election Day, uh, and we'll, we'll see you soon. Thank I you. Count on. Thank you. Thank you.